0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. One of the delights of being the pastor of St. Patrick's in Ravenna is our vibrant pastoral council. And for several years, that was led by a young, dynamic father of two, Alan King. Two years ago, while he was working in industrial environmental compliance, While on the job one day, he was electrocuted. The injuries he endured are beyond belief and he'll tell us all about those. But one of the worst things was suffering worse than third degree burns over 25% of his body. I never knew before walking with Alan through this that you could have burns worse than third degree, and yet he did. Doctors told him that his survival of such a violent electrocution was a miracle. They said he had a one in a million chance of making his way through it. But if you've ever burned yourself, even just casually in the kitchen or on a curling iron, you know the pain. And so you might be able to just take a glimpse of a hint of imagining what it could be like to be a burn victim. Doctors tell us it is the most painful kind of recovery. Alan went through it at the burn unit at Westchester Medical Center, and he was tested in every way, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and other ways as well. We are gonna have a conversation now about each of those challenges that he faced, and you have never heard such a candid sharing about all of the pain and all of the struggles, but also all of the strength and faith that were a part of it. So get ready to hear an honest conversation between a man who went right up to the very edge of death and his pastor.
1: I woke up about a half an hour later. I was knocked unconscious. I woke up. Just like that. I didn't know what had happened. I just, my eyes were burning. There was blood going down my face. I looked down at my my shirt and my jacket. It was, looked like I was in a war zone. Mm. Blood all over my clothes and I called, called for help. Your cell phone was there? My cell phone was with me, yes. When you called for help, Did someone come? Yes. First person that actually showed up was my father-in-law who also worked with me. He showed up shortly thereafter. Other employees showed up. And uh, shortly after that, the ambulance showed up.
0: You could tell by your father-in-law's reaction that something serious had
1: happened. I was sitting down and he came in looking around and he looked down because he wasn't expecting to see me sitting on the floor. So he was looking at eye level around and then he looked down and his face, I knew it was bad. I asked him, how bad is it? I went to get up. He said, it's bad. Stay down. Help's coming. He, uh. I had spoken to my wife briefly. I was very confused calling when I was making calls for help. I had called a couple friends. I had called a couple coworkers. Uh and You're I, in a state of shock while you're doing this, is that right? Yes. Yeah. I had been out for half an hour, they figured by looking at the timestamps on the phone from the last time I made a call to when I called for help. Uh my father-in-law told me that help was on the way and my wife was coming. And just to, you know, stay put, and, you know, just stay there, wait, help's coming. When your wife got the call from you,
0: did she know what had happened? Did she figure it out and put it together? Or how did she get informed?
1: She heard from me, uh, was on her way. She didn't think it was as bad as it was. She thought I just banged my head or something. I told her I thought I needed stitches because I was ble- that's that's all I knew at the time. I thought I needed stitches. I woke up, the blood was coming down my like I said in my eyes, and all i all i th- had no idea what happened. I was so confused uh, I just remember saying i need i need stitches, I need stitches and all everybody thought at first was that i just i bumped my head somehow hmm. The, uh, the ambulance took you to our local trauma hospital
0: here, which is Albany Medical Center. What did they do for you at Albany Medical Center?
1: So when they brought me to Albany Med, Albany Med I uh, was either in and out. I don't really remember a lot of it. I remember my wife telling me what they did mostly. They turned out it was worse than just a bump on my head. They had put me in a neck brace on the way there and they discovered that I had burns and they weren't sure what kind of burns they were. So they decontaminated my body in case there was hazardous material on it before they were ready to send me to Westchester. Westchester is where
0: there's a burn unit. So how did you get from Albany Medical Center to
1: Westchester? Again, I wasn't awake for it. Don't remember much of it. They airlifted me through a helicopter. They took me from Albany Med and they airlifted me to Westchester. My wife, my family, my parents, siblings—they, my wife—I let them know, know. Let them all know. They were all en route. In fact, my brother and think my parents and maybe even my wife had gotten there before I did, Mm. and they were waiting for the helicopter to get there.
0: This is where I come in, actually, because we were having a pastoral council meeting that night, and as I said in the introduction, you were the chair of the pastoral council at that time, and you were set to run the meeting at 7 p.m., and we had a guest coming in that night, so it was an extra special meeting, and... Everyone was there around 6.58, 6.59, except for you. And I didn't know where you were. You're usually there early. And so I stepped out in the hall with my cell phone to give you a call. And before I could call, your wife was on the phone, but she was on your phone. So I picked up, assuming that you were saying, oh, I'll be right there, I got caught, up, caught oh. at work. And instead it was your wife. And what she said was, Alan's been in an accident and he's being airlifted to Westchester. And I said, is he gonna be okay? And she said, I don't know, just pray. And I said, you got our prayers and you can call me anytime. And then she hung up, she said, thank you, I gotta go. And I went into the meeting and told everybody that you had been in an accident. We didn't know what kind of an accident but we all just started to pray. There were probably 12 12 of us there, 13 with the the trustees, and we just prayed. And it was an especially dramatic scene because as you will remember, one year to the day after the accident, uh, one year previously, there was a terrible uh, loss here of an 18-year-old in our parish who was cherished who died in a car accident. And his mother was also a member of the council, and we were preparing to strengthen her and pray for him and strengthen her family and your accident just hit us hit us like a tsunami so it's it's remarkable how many people in the parish were immediately connected to that you got to Westchester Medical Center by helicopter what did they find when you got there?
1: a lot of injuries I needed 250 stitches on my head, I had broken ribs, a lacerated spleen, uh, bruised artery from my spine to my to my brain, uh, a brain injury, concussion, I had third and fourth degree burns on 24% of my body, and I had two fractures in my neck, I broke my neck in two places. Alan, that is overwhelming to hear. Your back,
0: your neck, your interior organs, a quarter of your body burned, including third and fourth degree. Now, a lot of us have gotten first and second degree burns. There may even be some people who have gotten the seriousness of a third degree burn who are listening right now. I had never heard of fourth degree burns when I when I went to see you. And... Before we talk about that, let's just say this is all a result of being you realized by this point electrocuted yeah. you were electricity went through your body it went it am I right it went from your head it went through your arm arm
1: down and exited your rear end yeah, so again, I was knocked out don't know exactly what had happened uh Later on, putting the pieces together. The belief is that the electricity had entered my right arm. I got thrown forward. That's how I wound up with the injury on the my, top of my head. Went backwards. Also had a cut in the back of my head. They said that the neck injury was whiplash times 10. So that's how that happened. And then I, as I got thrown forward, they believe that As the electricity wants to ground, when I got thrown forward, it went out my bottom. What does it mean to have a fourth-degree burn? Most of us
0: have never heard of that. What's a fourth-degree burn?
1: I had never heard of it either, just like you. I thought that third-degree was the worst, and they told me you have third- and fourth-degree burns. I remember Michelle telling me, and I was like disbelief. I never had heard of it, but I knew it was bad because it hurt. So
0: did you, in the first couple of days, were you told what your injuries were or did it take time?
1: It took time. The first couple of days I had a, a breather. And again, I was in and out, don't really remember much. Uh, come to a couple days later. In fact, my wife was very worried, scared, because my kids were coming to see me for the first time, that she was didn't want them seeing me with the breather. Luckily, that had come out before my kids seen me that weekend. But... Did anybody
0: give you any idea of how close you came to dying?
1: Yeah, they told me... It's one in a million, they said. You should play the lottery when you get out of here. The nurses used to joke with me.
0: One in a million. Most people, 999,000 other people would not have survived the electricity. Mm -hmm. So, Alan, this is where it's interesting because you wound up getting a nickname when you were in the burn unit. The nurses called you the Wolverine. So there was, a, there was a recognition of your physical toughness from an early stage in this. But let's talk about, you had all of those injuries, which meant that you were there for quite a while, and you also had to have surgeries. How many surgeries did you have, and what were they for?
1: I had two surgeries, which were for the burns, skin grafts. And the first surgery was mostly the skin grafts and a couple of the fourth degree burns they can't do skin grafts on. So they actually cut those out and sewed them closed. And that was on a Friday. The following Monday, they did another surgery and which is a follow-up, which is when they put all the clips to hold all the skin grafts in place.
0: It's even worse than it sounds. Uh, I imagine to go through it's after visiting you in the uh, burn unit the uh the suffering there is is excruciating what of the of the injuries that you had of the surgeries that you had? what was the hardest thing to endure?
1: The burn changes it was in a word excruciating what What do you mean when you say a burn change? So before they do surgery, they, they need to let a lot of the skin, I guess, come off. They, they would clean me. So a burn change is basically bandages on my burn areas. And twice a day, morning and night, they would come in, they'd ask Michelle to leave and they would basically take the bandages off of me. It sounds doesn't sound that bad, but it felt like my skin was being peeled off of me. Because the bandages were actually they were sticking. They were sticking. And, and the and the skin was weeping. Right. Oh. Drainage. A lot. I had a lot of. I had a wound vac on me for a lot of the drainage. But the uh, the burn changes were usually five thirty in the morning. And about 8 at night, every 12 hours, or every 8 to 12 hours, uh, right before they would come in, a couple hours beforehand, I would start getting very anxious, nervous, scared, because it was the worst part of the day. Then they would come in again, they would ask my wife to leave. Uh, it, was a, it took about 20 minutes, felt like 20 hours they would have me turn to my lean over do one side while they were doing that there was a nurse or an aide helping change the linens they'll roll the linens up halfway into the middle of the mattress then I would have to roll back the other way and I remember them saying you got to roll over the bump and when I would roll over the bump the fresh bandages that were on my shoulder and back I remember leaning over onto the bump and just like it Sticking together and then when I lean over so they could do the other side They would have to move me a little bit and it was just It was awful After they were done. I Felt a little bit of relief. I was calm for a little while. I was like, okay, it's it's done and Then fast forward six seven hours later the anxiety of another dressing change in fact uh, one of my nurses I had two nurses that were really, really, everyone was excellent to me, but two nurses, Tony and Janet. Tony, during the daytime, Mm. he had told my parents and my wife, he's going to be okay. Mm. I've been doing this a long time, your son's going to be okay. He was the first one to tell him that, and he was great, and then Janet at night. So, backtracking to the surgery, the last dressing change, if you will. Tony says to me, I got good news and bad news, what do you want first? So let's have the bad news. What else, right? He goes, Well the bad news is you're gonna have to go for one more dressing change. It's gonna hurt. But the good news is that's it, you'll be done, you'll be ready for surgery. Mm. I said, Well, how bad is it gonna hurt? I go, I go, because you know, these have been brutal. In fact, one of the nurses that asked me, what's the pain on a 1 to 10? I said 150 Mm. when they were doing the dressing changes. On a scale of 1 to 10, it was 150. The most pain you've ever felt in your life. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. He says, well, it's going to be like that. He goes, I'm not going to, he goes, you know, I've been honest with you. I'm not going to, I'm a straight shooter. He goes, we have to get your body ready for surgery. What that entails is. We're going to clean you, scrub you. Basically, they brought me in. They put me over a basin. It was almost like a hot shower, but like a almost like a pressure washer. It felt like while they were pressure washing my skin on raw, burned skin, scrubbing all the, all the dead skin off. And then they bandaged me up and I was really, it was, he was right. It was worse. Uh, the next morning I was supposed to go be second or third in line for surgery come, turns around, it's two, three o'clock now, and I'm having eaten all day, just a couple of ice chips. And they said, well, Dr. Tarkowski's just finishing up now. He can either wait an hour or we can be first thing in the morning. And I said, well, I'd rather wait first thing in the morning, you know, when he's fresh and gets his rest, very demanding job. Uh, but I was worried I was gonna have to go through the the pressure and the scrubbing and Tony goes no that's done. He goes you're all that's all set. So I said okay let's wait till the morning and the next morning is when they did the the first round of the skin grafts.
0: Where did they get the skin to put on the the burned area? Uh, from my right thigh. So they took it from you which meant you were very deeply scraped.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. They could not use the they used that for the third degree The fourth degree burns on my right arm and on my bottom, they actually had to cut those out and sew them closed. That's how bad they were.
0: You had told me that music played a big part in your ability to cope. How
1: did did music play a part in your ability to cope and what kind of music did you use? Music has always been my go-to during my life, even back when I was a teenager. Whenever I've been down or troubled, I would a lot of times turn to the Beatles music. Uh, Johnny Cash is another one. Mm -hmm. A couple of the songs I would just ask to play, you know, Here Comes the Sun, Let It Be, in My Life, Yesterday.
0: Those are all. uh, And they would turn that music on.
1: And then they would do the dressing? Then they would do the dressing changes. I would always, I would take my phone out and I would put either Beatles or Johnny Cash on. Uh, Did you yell and scream? Yeah.
0: Did it help? Does it sometimes help when you're in pain to yell?
1: You don't really plan it. You don't really, it's hard to say. You really don't expect to yell. I guess is the way you could put it. Mm -hmm. It's just that it hurts so much. In fact, I was one time when they were doing the first dressing change on my right thigh. It had been it had been about five, six days. Nurse says, Have they changed the dressing on your donor site yet on your thigh? I go, I don't think so. Oh, boy, she goes. Oh boy, what, we're gonna have to do that. Okay, that was right up there with the burn changes. Again, on a one to 10, I said it's 100, 150. feels like you're torturing me. In fact, my wife was in the waiting room and they could hear me, like you said, screaming and yelling. And a guy says to my wife, is that a person? And Michelle goes, I think that's my husband. I don't know what they're doing. They're doing one of his dressing changes, but I think that's my husband yelling. I think that's my husband yelling. And my mother-in-law one time said, can't you give him morphine? And the nurse says, ma'am, she goes, "What what he's on is stronger than morphine. I think it was diluted. Wow. And it didn't touch it. It couldn't touch that pain. Alan, what do
0: you do? When the medicine can't touch the pain, what in that moment, I think a lot of our listeners, I bet there's people who've had to pause this because it's hurting them too much. You know how sometimes you'll see a movie and you have Mm -hmm. to just, you, you wind up gripping a part of your body to try to protect it. People are wondering, how do you, when you're in such intense physical pain, how do you get through it? Do you have anything to say about what you did in those
1: moments? What did you do with those moments? I leaned on my faith, my family. Uh, I'm not going to lie. There was a couple time, one time in particular, I just, after day four or five, I just couldn't, felt like I couldn't endure anymore. And I remember yelling, this isn't me laying here. Look at me. This isn't me. Mm-hmm. And I said. And Michelle got upset. She went and got Janet, the nighttime nurse. She came in and they were gonna like, give me something to calm me down. And I remember t- I told her, I said, I can't do it anymore. You just, let me die. Just let me go, I can't, it's just too much. And she looked at me and she says, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna let that happen. I can't do that. She said, you're, you've, You're doing it. She goes, it's almost a couple more days of this. You're going to get the skin grafts. She goes, you got you've believe it or not. She goes, you've gotten past the one of the hardest parts, which is going through the dressing changes. So I, I thought about that. I finally fell asleep. Woke up and Michelle was by me the whole time. And I just remember leaning on her, leaning on my parents. A couple of my friend my siblings were there all the time. A couple of my friends had come to visit me. And again, the music, you, Father Scott, come to see me. We sang a couple songs that I've even going back to my Antioch Antioch days as a teenager mm. in Ellenville. In Al, in we sang Be Not Afraid and Here I Am Lord, which are two songs that hymn songs that always have meant a lot to me. And I just, I, I prayed and we, we prayed together, we cried together. The chaplain there, the priest there, Doug and Father Peter came to visit me. And I was so scared about the surgery being put under. I've never been put under for anything. And of course, you, among everything that's going on, no one likes to be put under, everybody's afraid of that. and. The chaplain says to me, he was actually a burn victim too. The chaplain had been a burn victim. As a a child. Mm
0: -hmm. So he understood in a way that was so much deeper than anybody else.
1: And he told me, we walk by faith, not by fear. And I kept saying that to me, to myself. And I kept saying something that Father Scott actually has in his office. Mm. And it says... God doesn't give us what we can handle. God helps us handle what we are given. And I tried remembering those two things and the other phrase. This is the hand I've been dealt. I intend to play it. I got no choice. I got to play it. I've been dealt a bad hand, but I got to play it.
0: So moving. I think our listeners are feeling gratitude for the gift that you're giving us because it's so much wisdom and it's so raw and it involves you sharing such deep pain. We are so grateful. And and there's more, there's more depth here because uh, I wanna talk about your wife for a minute, your wife, Michelle, because I spent quite a bit of time with her during those early days, talking on the phone, visiting you at the burn unit. And there were times that she and I were alone. And I remember one time going to the cafeteria with her. The, nurse, the nurses were uh, doing something and needed us to leave. And we went down to the cafeteria. And I said, she had been there day and night. And we were having a very deep talk about what her deep worries were. And I know one of the things we talked a lot about were your kids, who two teenagers, who uh, we really were worried how it would have a long-term impact on them. But one of the things I said to her was, you are here day and night. This is so hard. I admire you so much. And what she said to me, I will never forget. She said, no one has to thank me. I signed up for this. On the day I married Alan, this is what I signed up for. I don't need to be thanked. This comes with a job. And I, I feel like I learned so much about commitment that day. And and people here know that. Those who go to St. Mary's and St. Patrick's might remember. I, I talked about that in a homily one time. It's just such a story of commitment. What have you learned about commitment
1: through this experience? Well, to add on to what you just said about Michelle, I remember my brother later on, my brother Dion saying... To my other siblings, if you want to know what commitment is and being in love is, he said, just look at Michelle. Mm. And we always hear the phrase as someone being described as a rock. Mm. And she was the rock, not only for me, but for the kids, my parents, my siblings, my my in-laws. There's a picture my mom took, as you said, about her being there day and night. And I don't know how far into this was, but my mom had taken a picture and I'm laying there in the bed and she's leaning over me like asleep, but sitting in her chair, holding my hand. And you could tell like she had been through a lot, but she was still there. Mm. Um, and then there was another photo of her holding my hand and my swollen hand with all the black soot and remnants of the, whatever, the electricity or whatever on my hands. And those two things stick with me. Um, yeah, if you want commitment, that was that's the best way to put it. She was... My rock and committed to being there for me and, and making that, like I said, not only me, but everyone else, my family. She would, even when the nights that my siblings or parents didn't stay over, she would send a group text and get everybody updates during the course of the daytime, during the nighttime. Any, uh, any changes, she always let everybody know. She dealt with the doctors, she dealt with all the phone calls, all the Insurance, you have no idea the amount of stuff that's going on. Mm-hmm. Life still goes on outside of the hospital. Mm-hmm. The bills are still coming in, the phone calls, you know, that doesn't stop. And she's a kindergarten teacher, and, and she's a kindergarten the school teacher. year is going on. And she, she managed all that. Uh, her friends, as well, Lindsay and Sheila, I remember, were there supporting her both parishes i had we had gotten we used to kid around later on saying that the best part of the day was when the mail came mm. why was that we had gotten cards letters post-it notes anything you name it not just from saint patrick's the parish i go to but from saint mary's in Koksaki. people i've never even met before sending me letters and cards We're thinking of you of you We're praying mm-hmm. for you mm-hmm. and it was so touching and it was what i needed every day mm-hmm. to know that people care but people that don't even know me care about me you know my friends the the parishioners the people i work with and see in in, in town they they care you know they did so much for us they did uh a meal train we didn't have I didn't have to we didn't have to worry about food for a month came home and there was so much food I remember mrs. Sanders took like a subway order for us one night I text Michelle, what's what kind of subs does everybody like And she brought subway over and that mm. every night parishioners or co-workers from Michelle or or myself or friends brought us food we were running out of places to put it we had so much food it was incredible
0: it strikes me that those Everybody, when there's a tragedy, when there's a shock and a trauma, people say, we want to do something to help. We want to do something to help. And they feel sometimes like what they're doing doesn't help. What does a card do? Or what does what does getting subway do? It sounds like what you're saying is, it makes a big difference. If you've got a chance to send a card, send it. It makes
1: a big difference. Exactly. The phrase is the thought that counts. That ne- that rings true uh, for someone like myself that was in there. The thought was huge for me that people were thinking of me. Again, people I don't even know from St. Mary's wrote me these letters. Such, I saved mm. every one of them. Mm. I have a bag at my house full. Mm. I have prayer cards from Father Scott. I have letters from people I don't even know that you know were thinking of you. We're praying for you, and I just remember even Michelle, like you know that every day that not only uplifted me but her too. And then I one time even Michelle's kindergarten class, all the kids made me cards, and I remember looking at Mr. King, get well soon, and
0: it's beautiful.
1: My friends that came to visit me, my just you can't do it by yourself when you're when you're faced with something like that, and unfortunately there's a lot of people that had to. I always try to remain cognizant of that there was people in there that had it worse than me. There were burns that were worse than yours there? There were there were six or seven other people in there. And I remember a couple, you get my, not me, Michelle, my sister, they get talking. They almost kind of become, it's a common bond almost. The families, and they get talking. And then you find it, and Michelle telling me later that this family, this happened to their, son, husband, sister, mother. And I always try to remember that after I got past my dark place I was in, that there's people in there, not only in Westchester, but all over, that would gladly trade their problems for mine. Uh... And that was huge for me to remember that, that there's people that have it a lot worse and I shouldn't be so hard on myself, shouldn't complain so much. Let's pause there for a second because I feel like the listeners
0: could really digest the wisdom of that, that that's powerful. I remember an author one time saying, it's not true that the worst is behind us. You don't always know that that's true. Right now in COVID-19, some of us are saying, well, maybe the worst is behind us. We can't know that. But what we can know is it could always be worse. And for someone like you going through burns like that to say that there were people who had it worse and to say that you felt fortunate when you looked at what some people were going through, I think that's really powerful. Because I think a lot of us would say, I'm the most unfortunate person I know. My problems are the biggest. And for you to say that there were other people who would have traded their problems for yours,
1: that's powerful. I felt that way at one point, that why'd this happen what did I do to deserve this? I feel like Everybody that's in a really bad spot goes through that. Mm. But coming out of it, out of that dark place is when you begin to, for me anyway, be aware that there's people that have it worse. There's people that have burns on their whole body. Mm. There's people that have a broken neck, but they're paralyzed. There's people that have a brain injury and... They can't function anymore. They, so I try to remember all that stuff. That, hey, as bad as this is, there's a poor kid, two three rooms down the, down the hallway from me that had it a hundred times worse than I did. Wow. And there were kids. Unfortunately, there were kids. It was a, a poor teenager that had been in there for about a year. And he passed away after almost 100 surgeries right before I had gotten there. 17 years old.
0: He made it a year
1: and then passed.
0: Oh. So the... Com- I, and I got to say, here's what I want to say about sitting with you and what it feels like. And I think our our listeners can hear it. There is such compassion in you, Alan King. There is such compassion. And even though you suffered so much on your own you care so much about the suffering of others and that is that is powerful for us that's powerful for us to sit next to there's a there's another group of people that you've talked with me quite about and i'd like to share because you talked about the compassion of the nurses and about what the nurses meant to you and the specialness of the nurses that work there one of the things you shared with me was just For any patient in the hospital, there's such humiliation because you deal with them seeing you screaming, but also they deal with nudity, they deal with bathroom issues. A patient there can't do anything for themselves. What did you learn from those nurses?
1: Again, the word commitment. Uh, Janet, Tony, Wes, Victoria, Raymond, Clarence, Amanda, there's so many nurses, Cr- Christina, the one that came up with the Wolverine nickname. She called you the Wolverine. Uh, just how committed they are to their job and how much care they give. I, When you think of a nurse, here's what's tricky about the burn unit. When you think of a nurse, they usually give care, removing pain. Mm. The cat, the kicker, the catches in the burn unit, unfortunately, a lot of times, nurses are inflicting pain. Mm. It's true. Uh, I remember Wes telling me one night, I asked him, how's it going? We got a couple fighters tonight, he goes. And what that meant was, other people that had to get the burn changes, that were waiting for their getting ready, they actually would have their fists up and they would take swings at the nurses and try to fight them off because of how much it hurt. Yeah. Uh, He told me he got, couldn't tell me any times he's been punched on his job. But again, I just recently connected with Janet who was one of my favorite nurses and I reached out to her and she said, stories of people getting better And, you know, I told her the impact she had. She said, that's why I do this and why I stay in the burn unit. Mm. Because I see the the impact. You know, sometimes it's not bad. Sometimes it's not good. It's a bad impact. She goes, but the good ones are what make it worth it. And the level of commitment that they have for people. Just knowing that you may go into a room and somebody may be taking a swing at you. (laughs) I mean, and to be able to do that two, three times. Four or five times even a night, maybe. Mm. You have to be committed to what you do. And I never would have... I never could do it, that that job. Mm. I give them all the credit. I loved every one of them. They were there for me. They helped me get through it. And I just can't say enough thanks for each and every one of them if they hear this.
0: We're going to make sure they hear this. They deserve to hear this. And... and- you just had a powerful reunion not long ago with one of those nurses. You reconnected
1: with Janet, is that right? What was it like to reconnect with her? So I had sent a couple cards, but I actually hadn't spoken to her. Uh, I finally was able to get her email address and I sent her a recent picture of me with one of my nieces and she wrote back to me right away, you know, good to hear from you. It was just very, you know, she said, I can't believe it's been two years already. And it's just really nice making that connection again with these people that they remember you. They remember your story. Uh, in fact, I said, remember that and they remember it. It's just, it's, I can't, it's hard to describe, but they, they truly care. And each person is unique to them and they care give each person the care they need. I mean, not just physically, they would listen to me. I would talk sports or talk about music, things that I like, things I was gonna do when I get out of here with them.
0: Well, I gotta say this too though, you don't forget a Wolverine and you survived a lot in there. And I I know you made an impact on them because I got to see it firsthand. How many days were you in the burn unit? Three weeks. The day you got out, what was that like? What did you do?
1: So the day I got out, they said, uh, well, you're gonna go home today. We got a wheelchair waiting for you. I said, No. No wheelchair. I said, I'm walking out of here, I said to them. I had I had to learn how to walk again after being flat want to backtrack for a second. When they cut the burns out on my bottom, I had to lay stagnant mm. for eight days. Mm. Couldn't sit up. Couldn't mm. lean up. I was truly flat on my back for eight days. Mm. And I would come in, like you said, the bathroom issues. So embarrassing. Mm. And I remember say, apologizing to the nurses saying, I'm sorry you have to do this. Mm. You know, I'm so embarrassed. And they said, don't, everybody goes, right? We go every day. Don't worry about it. I'd have to go stiff as a board, they would say. And they would turn me, put a bedpan. It was, I remember saying to myself, oh, I'll just hold it till I get out of here. Because it was, yeah, bad. I didn't, very, you know, mortifying, embarrassing. So, and fast forward to when I left now. So I had to deal with, I had to learn how to walk again. After being laying down, your, your muscle memory starts to fade. And they would walk me three feet, three feet, began 10 feet and then work on stairs. So anyway, I said, uh, I'm walking out of here. I did. I walked out. Michelle took a picture of me, uh, by the fountain out there. We got in the car and we took the long ride home on the Taconic. Uh, and we came here. We came to the church. I said, I need to thank God. I actually had a, which you would call a near-death experience. During my second surgery, and I said I needed—I just felt I needed to come here. And Father Scott always leaves the church open during the daytime, so a lot—even before the accident—would I would come up here, and like Father Scott would say, we all come in here with baggage, mm. and I w- would leave it here. Mm. After that, after the accident, I had a lot of baggage, so I came in here, came to the church. That's what I needed to do was first thank God for being there for me, getting me through it. Not just me, my my wife, my kids. Mm -hmm. You know, they had a lot. My in-laws driving back and forth, my parents, my siblings. There was a lot of layers to this. Mm -hmm. And I just said, thank you. And um, I have a lot of baggage, Lord. Uh, I need you to help me with it. And I remember... One of my favorite things, too, is the footprints, yeah, uh, Sh- just share with people who might not know what that is, what it says one it's a poem it's it takes it's about two a person walking a beach with the Lord, two sets of footprints, and then all of a sudden, there was only one set of footprints. And in fact, during the one set of footprints was during the person's hardest times in life. So for me, going through the burns, one set of footprints. And the poem says, Lord, when I needed you most, you weren't there. I knew that wasn't true. I The following part of the poem was what, what was true. Jesus says, my child, I would never abandon you. You know, I love you. The times you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you.
0: You were carried. And you know what's interesting about you saying footprints and sharing that? I think is just a very interesting detail. I was here the day that you came out of the burn unit. I was here when you went into the church. And what I think was remarkable was you left your footprints everywhere because you had no shoes. Why, Alan, did you have no shoes that day?
1: I had my hospital socks on that I walked out with. I don't know where my I didn't, <laughs> ha, I didn't have a pair of shoes. Your shoes were—they were uh, ruined in the in the accident. They were ruined in the everything accident. in the accident was lost. My wallet, my pants, my boots, my jacket, my or my sweatshirt I was wearing. Everything was ruined, completely lost. The only thing that wasn't ruined or even affected by the electric, electricity, the me being electrocuted, was the cross that I wear. Which they, you're wearing right now. Which I'm wearing now, and I, when I got home, one of my friends had given it to my father-in-law, or vice versa. He okay. had got. They had taken it off when they de in the, and when they decontaminated me. I mean, they they before they put me in the ambulance, they had given it to him. It was the only thing that was saved. And when I got home, they gave it back to me. Uh I want to, again, if I can, take a moment backtrack about my near-death experience. Talk to us about that. It's a long story. I'll try to get to the meat and potatoes of it, I guess, as they say. I was getting prepped for surgery, talking to, there was a a resident there, and um, I was speaking to him, and uh before i knew it i was i was just saying am i going to be okay and he was just saying yeah i'm here i'm here and then before i knew it i was i was gone and i was stuck almost in like a warehouse and i would get to the end of a belt conveyor belt almost with gears and whistles going off and i would go back to the beginning and all the while i feel the sensation of cr- crackling like the christmas wrapping paper that's a foil mm. that's what i feel like mm. and i say i'm stuck i'm stuck here then it gets totally bright The brightness fades i open my eyes and i'm actually on a, a rowboat with jesus he has his back towards me but i know it's him long brown hair, I can see his beard, his sandals, he's wearing a white robe, like a red shawl or a scarf over him, and he says, we're here, and I'm in nature, on a, on a stream, just country all around us, and I said, I don't know what to do. He goes, well, you can stay, or you can come with me. It's up to you. I said, my, my family needs me, my kids need me, I need to stay. He goes, okay. Well, you know, I love you. You know, I'm here for you. I'll wait for you. Lean on me during this whole thing. And all the while, I feel embraced while I'm with him. And I'm talking to him like he's my best friend. But at the same time, Mm. I've told you before, I could feel how powerful he was. More powerful than the biggest army on the world, on the planet. But at the same time, it's like talking to my mom, my wife, my best friend, compassionate, understanding... I said, I need to stay. He goes, okay, lean on me. Now I feel my body basically drifting on shore. And I see him untying the rope that he had docked the boat that we were on. And he says, I love you. And I'm on the shore now physically, I feel my body there. And then it gets bright again, bright white. Close my eyes, the brightness, fades I open my eyes and now I'm physically in the hospital room and I'm looking around and I go hello and my wife Michelle goes I'm here and I was back and all the while I could feel just the embrace the love by him and as time has gone on and I've told this story three components I realized were there God was the light, the embrace was the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, all three of them, mm. the Trinity, were there for me. Mm. And also, mm. I wanted to just touch on, I drove myself back. I don't remember a second of it. On the day of the accident? The day of the accident. I meant to talk to, say, speak about this earlier. I had, like I had said, I was knocked out. Somehow I drove myself back for help Um, and I felt the presence and I continued to feel the presence of my two grandmothers who aren't with us anymore and the young person we had spoken about, uh, the young person we had spoken about that was a member of the parish, I felt his presence also, the three of them. I tell that they were my guardian angels and they drove me back.
0: So the three people with you were your grandmother on your dad's side, your grandmother on your mom's side, and the the young man who died in the accident a year before your accident. Yes. And and we should honor him because we know his family is listening. His name is Logan Penzabine, and he is very much in our hearts. And you you have felt so connected to his family since then. You have felt so connected. That is the strongest connection.
1: I felt his presence a lot in the hospital. I felt his presence since then.
0: I just think for our listeners, the power of that because one of the things that you said, Alan, that was... I think let's go back to the power of Jesus when you, when you met him. Mm-hmm. When you encountered him, he was the most down-to-earth, relatable, compassionate, like-you kind of person. And at the same time, more powerful than all the forces of the world put mm-hmm. together. And so the, it's just so powerful to imagine that the connection you could have with someone who's in that kingdom, with Logan, who a year before your accident went into that kingdom, you didn't really know, you never met him, is that true? I never, I've never met him. You've never never met him. I never met him. But from heaven, he had the power to help you and be with you. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing.
1: And I know that. Sorry. You've told his parents that. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, and the, the whole, it's real. I just felt their presence his presence my grandparents seeing Jesus was real it made my faith stronger after that I, we all go through times in our life where we question we have doubts since that I have haven't had any doubts i know I know that he's he's there he's he's with me and I know that he's waiting for me he told like he told me he's waiting for me does not having doubts mean
0: that you don't have problems or that life isn't hard? No, life is still hard. Yeah, but, but it's, it's not involving wondering if you're loved and that if it's gonna be okay.
1: Another phrase, I know I'm using a lot of phrases here. They're helpful. We don't know what the future holds but we know who holds the future. Amen. Amen. And so you're willing, you're willing to trust. I trust. I walk by faith, not by fear, not by sight. I trust in in the Lord. In fact, my dad and my mom had got me something and uh, I have it hanging up in my house now. But when I was down in in the hospital and my, my dad got a a little sign that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Mm -hmm. And I do. And you do, and you live it.
0: One challenge that you're in the middle of right now is that at least at this point, doctors have determined that you are, after having the injuries you had, not able to work. What's it like for you to go through that adjustment when you've always been a hard-working
1: provider for your family? It's hard to accept. You know, some days you think, oh, I'm going to get up and go to work, put my shoes on and go to work. Or life will be like it used to be. So the hardest part is acceptance. It's been over two years and I'm still working on acceptance. Mm. You know, I worked hard. I enjoyed what I did. I felt at the end of the day I made a difference. It was Mm. very rewarding to me. Mm. Taking pride. Like you say, you know, um, supporting my family. Mm. And then all of a sudden you don't feel like... I can't support my family now. Mm. And that's when, again, your faith and your family come in and support you um, in a lot of ways. Friends. Mm.
0: Ellen, there are people listening right now who don't know you and they don't know me. And the reason they're listening is because they were forwarded this as a link because they've been through something traumatic. Maybe they've been injured at work. Maybe they've been in an accident. Maybe something has happened and somebody said, hey, I heard this, listen to this. If those people are are laying in bed right now or sitting in a chair and they're listening, and they are, and they're at an earlier stage of this and they're listening to you just over two years beyond the, the trauma, Mm -hmm. What, what encouragement could you give them
1: who are listening right now? Again, rely on your faith, your family, and your friends and try to remember that no matter how hard it may seem right now, that it will get easier. They say one day at a time. Sometimes it's one hour at a time or even one minute at a time you just you have to trust not only in the lord your family but in yourself trust in yourself that you can overcome it stay strong even when it's hard and bleak i understand i've been there i know how it feels Mm. You're not alone. You're not the only you're not the only person that's felt like that. It's okay to feel like that. It's okay to be hurt and sad. It doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you're weak. A lot of people say oh I'm weak. If I can't do it, it doesn't mean you're weak. I was at a very bad, bad place and I through support worked through it. You just have to believe in yourself that each day will get a little bit easier. You're not, it's not going to happen in the snap of a finger. It takes time. You need to be patient Hmm. and you just, in a word, you need to trust. You have to, like they say, let go and let God, and you need Support. It's okay to ask for help. A lot of people don't want to ask for help for the same reason. Oh, it's okay to ask for help. We can't. There's times in our life we can't do it by ourselves, and we need we need help. Mm -hmm. Powerful. Even wolverines can struggle.
0: Even wolverines, and that's that's who you are. We're now we're now down to uh, a couple of questions that. I like to ask every single person that I interview, and uh, these are in, in no particular order. A lot of people love the phrase, everything happens for a reason, and you'll often hear that said. One of the questions I'm asking
1: everybody is,
0: do you believe that's true?
1: No, I don't. Uh, I don't think everything happens for a reason. I don't say we talked about this before let's see how much alan king can handle or god will throw burns in a broke no accidents happen Mm. my mom said it best we live in a physical world Mm. and things happen accidents happen Mm. i don't think everything happens for a reason Mm. i think that there's reasons after something happens that you can make make an impact You can help other people when something happens. You can seek help. You can become closer with other people. There's reasons afterwards, if that makes sense. So I don't believe everything happens for a reason, but I believe accidents happen, but there can be good reasons later on that can happen because of what happened to you. I think
0: this is one of those. I think you are making a reason for what you went through. You are offering it as strength to people who need it, and that is a beautiful reason to do what you're doing. Alan, another question is, a lot of people right now are so challenged by coronavirus, they're so worried about their finances, they're so afraid about their health, Anybody, you and I are the same age. We're in our 40s now. Our parents are older. We're we're worried for them. Yeah. We're worried for the future of our children. Are you know what kind of a what kind of a a, a world are our kids going to be raised into? A lot of people are wondering how they're going to endure how hard this is. There's not an end date for this right now. For you, after what you've been through, what do you think is the key, at least at least for you, in practicing the
1: virtue of endurance? So, you said, like, our ch- my children. Just want to tie the, tie this together. When I was laying there, you think about your parents. You think about well, if, what's going to happen if I'm, if I'm not around my kids growing up 10, 20 years from now. You know, and you worry about them. So, link fast forward to now. We worry about our family, our friends, our neighbors. We have to... Remember, again, we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. Mm-hmm. We have to trust in God and know that, hey, it may not be tomorrow. It may not be next week. It may not be next year when we go back to normal. But at some point, we will. We have to trust trust in the Lord with that and that we will come out of it. Amen. Amen. Final question, my brother.
0: All of us are wondering what life will be like after coronavirus. Some of that we have control over. Most of it we don't. What are your greatest hopes for what life will be like when we get beyond coronavirus?
1: My greatest hope is that we learn from this. That we respect the people that are out there right now, healthcare workers, mm. uh, cashiers at ShopRite, Walmart, mm. the post office, treat people kindly. Just that that's my main, you know, you see a lot of the good stories that have come from this and I hope that, my hope is that that, that, that continues when we're past the COVID-19 coronavirus. Is that we still look out for each other. We still love each other. We're decent to each other. And that we learn from this. Amen. Let
0: it be so. Let it be so. Alan King, you have given us a great gift of wisdom and of of vulnerability. I can't believe all of the things that you said that our listeners can value. So let's just take a second to treasure it. They say that we have to savor things when we hear them so that we can really allow them to change us. So let's just take a moment. What is one of the phrases Alan said today that's gonna stick with you? What is something that he's used as a mantra for his life that you thought, I want to adopt that too? He was talking about those nurses that that changed his life with their compassion. Who came to mind when you were thinking of his story. Who in your life has done that for you in some way? Alan's wife has taught him about commitment by the way she was by his side during this time. What comes to mind for you when you think of commitment? What commitments have guided your life? What kind of commitments do you want to guide your life going forward? Alan said that we have no idea what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. How does that sit with you? What does it feel like to know that you don't need to have all the answers to believe that you can trust? Alan King, I close out this just thanking you from the bottom of my heart for allowing me to be part of this journey with you, for learning from you, being able to not only be your pastor, but also your student. Thank you for your time and thank you for what you just offered us.
1: Thank you, Father Scott. Uh, I just wanna say again, thank you to Michelle, my parents, my in-laws, my brothers and sisters, my kids, Riley and Isaac, all the healthcare workers, You coming to see me, my friends that were there for me on the phone, my friends that come to visit me. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Alan. And thank you, listeners, for spending this hour with us. We are moved and touched by your presence. Peace and all good be with you all.